0: Color Me Sane, a new podcast where we explore the world of forensic nursing. We educate and tell about our experiences of working with sexual assault, domestic violence, strangulation, non accidental trauma, and human trafficking survivors.
1: Color with us as we explore the world of sexual assault nurse examination. Our aim is to use this medium to educate the public and other nurses on the different aspects of this exam, your rights as a survivor and resources available to you. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or legal advice. All information obtained from this podcast is for general information purposes only. Please reach out to your local entities for recommendations specific to you. Welcome back to another episode of Color Me Sane. I am Shanique and this is my colleague, Melissa. And today we'll be diving into another topic and we will be looking at what does a sexual assault exam look like? Um, So for many persons, this exam, or for many places, this exam will be pretty much the same, but it might be a bit different. So we're going to talk about our experiences. And once again, if you're a sane nurse out there, or a forensic nurse examiner, and you would love to share your experience, you can shoot us an email, and the link is below, and we will be happy to have you on our our podcast, so we can discuss this with you. It'll be wonderful to have you. So, Melissa, would you like me to go ahead and start talking about what a forensic medical exam looks like? Um,
0: yeah, I think it would be good that you can talk about what it looks like, like in the hospital setting, because that's what you're used to. And then afterwards, I can give a little input about what it looks like when you're in like a clinic setting, especially for like adolescents. Oh, nice. All right. So
1: for a sexual assault exam. So I, feel, I think like last week we did go over like some of the steps, like when you, can't, when you come into the hospital and going through the triage process so that pretty much remains the same you if you come directly to the hospital you go through the whole triage process and at that point we try our best to put you into a private room you're almost always placed in a private room um we do like some programs so i'm talking about myself here our program have a private room for sane patients that we can pull patients back immediately but i know not all programs have Um, such a private room like that so they're placed in one of the the, like a closed room in the emergency department and that room is like it's closed off so you're not having like regular traffic going going in and out of that room Um, but for my program we pull you back to that room and that's where we start doing the whole process now before we even get to the medical forensic exam we go over consent and we did speak about consent last week but i'm just going to touch on it a little bit again because it's so important it is so important for a survivor of sexual assault to understand that the exam is yours and you choose which parts of the exam you want to choose so for instance, there's a part where you have the like medical and social history. Um, then there's a part where you talk about what exactly happened during the assault. There's a section that you speak about. Um, we'll ask clarifying questions. Um, you can answer or you can decline to answer um, when it comes to your HATITWA assessment. If you don't want us to look at certain parts of your body, that's okay. If you don't want us to look at your body at all, that's Okay. I've even had cases where patients have said to me, um, "I don't want to talk about everything. Um, I just want you to swab my body," and I'll um, let them know. Okay, I just need to know some basic information so I know where which part of your body to swab, things like that. So and they'll they'll tell me he kissed me here, he kissed me on my neck, he. He inserted his sexual organ right here. And based on what they tell me, I made that document. I put that in my documentation and I will go from there. So it's your, it's your exam, as we've said plenty of times, and you, you control it. Also, you can give us full consent to do everything, to take pictures, to do all the swabs, to do the head-to-toe assessment. And when it gets down to that part, you will change your mind. That is completely okay. Because once again, it is your exam. And if you change your mind, no forensic nurse is going to force you to do something that you don't want to do. You came to us because something already happened that you didn't want to happen to you. So we're not going to put you through that again. So after we go through that whole content portion we start the we go through medical history um, and social history um, just to get your baseline then we start going through the history of what happened that brought you here now I I habitually tell my patient you'll ask you I'll ask you like what brought you here and you'll start telling me but there are certain questions that I'm going to have to ask follow-up questions on and they are open-ended follow-up questions and i tell my patients because i don't want them to feel like i'm questioning if the assault happened or not it's just a part of the documentation that's going to help me look over your body and help me identify where to swab and where not to swab so it's like um giving them a preemptive like hey if you say x i may ask i mean if you say for instance if you tell me i'm trying to think of something if you tell me um he pushed me there. I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by there? Because um, he pushed me there can be mean so things. Like he pushed me there could mean he, the person, the the survivor was pushed into a wall, or he, um, the survivor was pushed on a certain part of their body. So just, just, just to help me understand what happened, so I can help you medically and um, know where to swab your body for evidence, if that's if if that's possible.
0: Can I jump in for a second? Just to uh, say a little bit more about that. Um, one reason why we do ask for clarifications, a lot of times we may know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Especially if you're using um, you, body language to kind of show us. However, it that is hard to come off in a courtroom um, or to like a jury or to the DA or to law enforcement. So we need to be very clear and we have to use words that are proper. Um, there are other ways around that though if you're really not comfortable telling us the words, we have body diagrams, we'll pull them out and we'll be like just point because then it's easier to point to make a circle or an X on the body digra- body diagram to show exactly what you were talking about. We just can't say that we've assumed there right we can't imply is the genital area even if you're pointing maybe you're actually pointing at your thigh we can't assume at all so that is one reason why we have to ask that and we it is very hard for people sometimes to want to tell us so if you don't want to tell us you're always glad to write it down the words down or you can point at it on a body diagram yes well said
1: Absolutely. Well said. And if you write it down for us or if you point on a body diagram or we'll ask you to like put X on the body diagram, we will scan those body diagrams in. So in, our, in your chart, so it becomes a part of your record. And if that case goes to court, it actually is a part of your record, as I said. So that will be there. So it shows that we were not being impartial in your exam. This is what you said and we wrote what you said. And that's that. So well said, Melissa. Thank you for jumping in right there. Yes, yeah, so clarifying questions. So I will I'll ask the qualify the the clarifying questions, and after we've done with that, I usually like just take a few seconds or a minute and go back through your history to ensure that I've captured all that I need to capture, and just I usually make like a little list for me of all the swabs that I need when I'm looking over your body, if you gave me permission to, to do that. So we, after I've done that, now we jump into the head to toe assessment and this is, this is the part where we'll do the head to toe assessment, digital photography and swabs. Um, if you're, if you're fully clothed still, meaning you're coming, you're coming, this is, this is like right after the assault, I will have you so in the kit so we have the, this, the 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 rape kit that we use it has some papers in it some huge papers that we pull out and we can put on the ground and we have you step on that paper and change on that paper so I'll have my patients step and change on that paper Though I'll just ask them don't put like put your I want them to put like their shirt in one one corner their pants in one corner their you know, their underwear in one corner, if they're willing to give their clothes up for evidence collection. Now, I have had so many patients that that's told me, I don't want to give my clothes up. I don't, you can have my underwear. And if that's the only thing you want to give me, I'll take it and put it in your kit for evidence. Some patients have told me this is a very expensive underwear. I really like this underwear. I don't want to give it to you. I'm not going to force you. I'll take it and I'll swab the crotch of your underwear and collect it as evidence. So again, that is completely up to you if you want to give it or not. Um, so after you've, you've, you've gotten out of your, the clothing that you've worn to the exam, I put you in a gown. And then we start the head to toe. So the head to toe assessment literally goes from the top of your head to the, your foot bottom we look at everything once you give us permission. So I'm going to go through your hair. Um, I'm going to look if you have any, like any tenderness and any bruises, because you can have like lacerations and stuff that needs suturing. Um, if there's a lot of blood, I'll take pictures of that bloody area. Then we'll go through and clean it properly. And, um, after it's cleaned properly, I'll take more pictures. If it's something that needs suturing, what I've done is I'll call the, the, the ER. If I'm in the ER, I'll call the ER doc. They'll come and we'll, start, we'll get that taken care right away because that's a medical need. So medical need will always trump what we're doing. So we'll get that taken care of, especially if it's still bleeding. Take that care of and then we'll move along. And we go through all that process. If I'm if I need to swab, we'll swab the breast, we'll swab the neck, um, the vulva, Mons era, the whole like the whole nine yards. We'll do pictures and swabs as we go along. All that swabs is they're individually they're placed individually in little boxes. They are um they are carefully labeled and they are like sealed in that rape kit. And once we're done, it's placed in a is a locker that only the same nurses have the code for and it remains there until law enforcement comes and pick it up um so that is like a quick overview of the head to toe portion of that part of the exam after that's that's done usually i we can go and i'll have the patient if i need to get them new clothing because we do have like a clothing closet in our er that we can get them clothing in the event that they gave up their clothes or if they kept their clothing and they just need an underwear, we'll give them on um, like a new pair of underwear. So we they have access to all that and we can give them a baggie with like sometimes there's like um, like toothbrush toothpaste, like stuff that they can need to clean themselves up after the exam. They change over and then we'll go through the whole discharge process with them. Would you like to add anything to that, Melissa?
0: The only thing that I wanted to say was if your kit is handed directly over to law enforcement when your exam is finished, it doesn't mean anything is wrong. Especially in some areas of states or in some states in general, say nurses are ran by the state. So they are not working out of that ER directly. They are coming from other parts of the state to do your exam. And those ERs will not have a secured way to store your kits. So as soon as your exam is over, they just hand it directly over to law enforcement. And so that will be secured at all times. So if your kit is handed directly over to law enforcement, doesn't mean anything is wrong. It is just the way that they store their kits. So... To talk a little bit about what you may see if you are getting an exam done in the clinic, it's pretty similar to the ER, but it does look a little different. So a lot of times children and adolescents will be seen in a clinic over an ER, but in some areas you may also be seen in a clinic as an adult. It's a little bit simpler, though. You are just going to come in... um, For children though, sometimes it's not as simple because it might be a whole day with them. They're normally at children advocacy centers and they've already been talking to a lot of different people. But because you're already in a clinic, you're not in the ER. We don't have doctors that are gonna come and sash you. We're not gonna be doing blood work or anything like that. We're gonna come. We're gonna start off with your basic consents. If you're under 18, your parents are gonna consent. If you are under 18 after the consents, we, the parents are going to leave your room. And that is because when we are talking to anyone under the age of 18, we do not want influence by anybody else. This also goes to those who may be over 18, but may be in that disabled category. We don't want anyone else in the room to influence them. So if the child or the patient is okay with you leaving, we will ask anybody else to leave the room. And we're going to just talk about what happened those are those open-ended questions and then afterwards we sometimes just do like a basic head to toe and we take those swabs but we don't always do photographs and a lot of times if you're coming in through a clinic setting some places won't always do genital exams especially if it's been a while Um, and that's just because at that point there may not be anything left to see so you're going to see a lot of times with those what we call non-acute exams we may not actually do photographs and we may not actually look at the genital area. Now, if, we are, if the patient is saying that they're having any bleeding or any burning or they're sore, we still may look just to make sure there is not a change from the usual. And sometimes if you're in an area where you're at high risk of this happening again, we may take photographs as, so people have like a baseline and then that way if you're assaulted later we can compare those photographs in the genital areas. Just wanted to clarify, just kind of go over that, that sometimes you're not gonna have that ER setting. So you're not, you may not do urine, you may not be doing blood work, you may not have a doctor see you. You're gonna be with the nurse and that is all. So just to quickly review the four steps of an exam that Lynn talked about was their consents. They are talking to you about what happened and open-ended questions. They are a head-to-toe exam. During that head-to-toe exam, we also do photographs. And we will also swab your body for DNA evidence if it's within that time frame to swab. Lynn, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about that we look at during exams? Um, yes. So
1: one of the things I want to touch on is behavior during an exam. Um, So I've heard a lot of persons say things like, and when I say a lot of persons, I'm talking like non-clinical people, Um, that person doesn't appear to be or that person doesn't look like anything happened. Um, They're just seeking attention. There is no one behavior to fit how you should look. Or appear if you've been assaulted. Everybody react to trauma different, and because of that, some persons might be sobbing, crying their eyes out. Some persons maybe laugh. I've had a I had a case where this girl, it was an acute case. I think it it happened right before she came to me, and she was laughing her butt off, and she was making jokes. And in the middle of that, she was crying and she she kept on apologizing, saying, "I'm so sorry, but I cope with trauma through humor." And I just had to tell her, like, if that is how you want to cope, cope. And her jokes were funny. Her jokes were really funny, and um. It's just if that is how you cope. That's how you cope. That's how you cope. Some person might just seem flat and absent, like they're not there. Some people might appear like they're agitated at the world. They might appear that they want to curse you out. Um, they might like be talking to you, but you can see that their wheels are turning somewhere else. Some people may have difficulty staying awake; they just want to sleep. Um, some people may have. Uh, some persons definitely when it's so acute like they haven't had any sleep yet they might even have difficulty remembering what so they're there's no linear thought so they'll start by saying something like i i was i jumped in my car to went to the supermarket and then they're like but wait but didn't i meet this guy like two weeks ago and it's like they're trying to process while trying to talk to you and It's like they're they're literally all over the place and you're still having to document where they are, document what they're saying. It might you might just not getting in a chronological order. Um, Some patients might have might just have like all they can remember is he or she had a tattoo on their chest. That's it. That's all they can remember. And if that's all you can tell me, that's all I'm going to document that, that is what is, was important to them at that time. Um, and I'm not going to make you feel less than because you can't remember anything else. Some people might have difficulty answering questions. I've had a patient where the, I asked the question, tell me what happened to your body that brought you here? And the patient started cursing me out and And saying uh, like she was saying how dare i ask her that she doesn't even know what happened and i just sat there and i took it because uh, it had just happened and she had no like she did not have any time to process it now that person had like she eventually declined doing anything else and she left and i just ensured that she had all the resources that she could need and let her know that if she wanted to come back like, we will be here to help. Like, she can come back at any point in time. But it can be so different. There's no one way to react because everybody is different. So I, I, I never want to hear anyone, whether it be a passerby or a medical person, saying that nothing happened to that person. Look how they're looking. That person is all acting because everybody reacts to trauma differently.
0: That is very good. Um, Have you had a lot of people that kind of, acted maybe had that behavior that people would seem as odd for the experience they just went through.
1: Yes. Yes, I've had so many flat pa- patients or patients that Yeah patient that they're and sometimes when they're there with their friends and this is what I realized sometimes when they're there with their friends or certain family member they behave like everything is quote-unquote normal because normal can be different for people but what society deem as normal that's how they're behaving but sometimes as soon as that person leaves a room when we're gonna start about the history of what happened then you'll see like a lot of times you'll see a change in that person's behavior like like they feel like it's kind of like they feel like they can just relax and just let whatever they're feeling go and they don't have to to put up a wall if that makes sense
0: no that makes perfect sense I've also noticed a lot with children they act like they normally would and they don't always act anywhere different Um, and that I think is just a huge difference sometimes they don't really understand what's going on they don't understand that something bad happened to them or they just don't know how they're supposed to be feeling so that is a great thing to point out that just because you're you don't have to worry about how you're acting while you're there we we don't always look at those things because we understand that everybody reacts to trauma different everybody has a different trauma response
1: Yes, and I think to my to my knowledge from my training, what I remember is that patients who are seen immediately after a sexual assault, so patients who have not slept after the assault may have more um, um, difficulty with memory. Um, so they may need more comfort measures. Their medication, their, not medication, their exams might take a bit longer because you're having to pa- pause so that they can like gather themselves. And a lot of times, especially with these patients adv- or advocacies, like it's perfect now your advocate should always be there once a patient wants them but if it's such an acute case having an advocate is like prime because these patients usually have a lot of times usually have more meltdown meltdowns than patients who have had time to like sleep and think about what happened before seeing a forensic nurse
0: yeah and that's a great thing that we could talk about in future episodes hopefully if anybody wants to as an expert in trauma we could um, trauma brain and stuff maybe we could talk a lot more about that because trauma brain is is a pretty is a big thing and we have to remind a lot of times we have to remind law enforcement and lawyers about trauma brain when they are reading our charts or when they are interacting with our patients absolutely absolutely Um, So now we are going to talk a little bit about when you do come in for an exam, especially if you're if you're in the acute stage, what medications are available for you? So Lynn, would you like to start off with that? So
1: let's just dive into medications. So prophylaxis medication when it comes to acute sexual assaults. So that's sexual assault that happened within five days. All right. So so let's talk about adults first. So for adults, we we pretty much the, the STIs that we cover are chlamydia, trichomonas and gonorrhea. Um we do not routinely test for chlamydia, gonorrhea and trichomonas in the adult population unless you're like a protected adult class so like um or Adults who are quote unquote adults, so you're adult in age, but you are you're disabled or you're one of those cases that we could call APS for those patients We or somebody that, you know, can't consent to sex. Let me just put it that way. But once you're sexually active and you have sexually active, you've had sex before, we don't usually test for these STIs unless we see something um, like you have symptoms or you you're telling us about symptoms that you're having while we're doing your physical assessment so for chlamydia we usually recommend to the er for so that for chlamydia you get doxycycline twice per day 100 milligram trichomonas for for trichomonas you get flagell 500 milligrams twice per day and for the trichomonas it's usually for adult patients only and if you have had alcohol Within the, first, within the last 24 hours, we usually delay that first dose because anybody who's ever mixed flagell with alcohol know that you're going to get some intense abdominal pain that could probably send you back to the ER. I've seen it before. You, you just don't want to mix it. And then you get one shot of septriazone in the er that will cover you for gonorrhea if you have it so even though we don't routinely test what we do recommend is that within four to 48 weeks you follow up with a clinic in your area or a primary care follow up to get retested for chlam- chlamydia gonorrhea and trichomonas just to ensure that if you had it it's clear and even if you did we didn't test you before that and you got the the prophylaxis medication, that you don't have it within four to eight weeks, so we just want to ensure that you remain negative. Um, if you are, if you are allergic to these medications, there are alternatives that we can use. Um, we just have to speak with your provider, and there are usually alternatives that we can help you get to ensure that um you don't get an STI because nobody wants an STI if for if for some reason your nurse feels or realizes that you are not going to finish a whole week of medication there we can use the old CDC recommendation so this is usually for like our patients that are like verbalizes trafficking or high risk trafficking or patients that we know are not going to pick up the medication so we've had i've had patients who tell me i'm not going to pick up these medications because i just can't afford it and even with good sometimes there is a copay sometimes the copay is like it's real small like five or ten dollars and they'll tell you i can't pay for this i'm not going to do this um so if if those are the cases, we can recommend the one-time doses, and usually it's just up for chlamydia, you get one-time dose of azithromycin, one gram. For trichomonas, you can get a one-time dose of two grams. However, in the ER, however, if you've had alcohol within the past twenty-four hours, remember you can get flagyl, so you're gonna have to get a script for this one, and then for gonorrhea you get the same one-time dose of ceftriaxone in your muscles in the ER before you leave. Um, For our pediatric population, now, for pediatric population, it's different because we test all our kids for chlamydia gonorrhea and trichomonas. Trichomonas, if you're a female. For me, I've had cases where an adolescent have told me, I'm not having sex, I'm not having sex. And I'm like, okay, let's just, if you don't mind, mom, if you don't mind, let me just test the urine. And guess what? It pops up chlamydia. It pops up something. So it's, and you know, at the end of the day, like somebody will say like, why is she, why doesn't she believe me? She thinks I'm lying. Teenagers a lot of times and even some kids they're so fearful of telling you what happened, especially if their parents are right there, they're afraid of getting in trouble. So it's it's a safety net. Let me it, it doesn't hurt to test. It's you're we're not swabbing for or pediatric and adolescent population. We're doing it all by urine. So if you can give me a little urine, we'll send it to the lab. We'll get it tested. If it's negative, great. If it's positive, we at least we know it's positive and we can start medication treatment. Now the medication regime is the same as the adult, but it's weight based. So usually the pharmacy will will do that calculation. After a certain weight, you get adult dosage. But for the younger kids, it's definitely weight-based. Um, so you have to ensure that for all your pediatric adults in population, you always have to get a, weight, a height and weight on them. For our practice, like for our facility, the pharmacy won't even look at it if you don't have an updated weight in the chart. And that is fine. It's it's standard. It's what we should do. So it's what we're going to do. Um, if we get the results that if we get like a positive result after the patient has left the ER, and say mom, mom, mom or dad or the guardian said, um, I don't wanna start. Cause some parents will say, I don't wanna start anything unless something is positive. If something pops up positive after they've left, we'll give the guardian a call and we'll let them know if they're an adolescent, they can choose if they want to be called them like, straight to their phone or if uh, they're OK with us calling a parent. So we usually get that in the co- whole um, like content p- part. We usually ask our, our adolescent patient, hey, do you do you want to is it OK if we call mom if something pops up or do you want to definitely be be called? And they'll tell you and. The mom is going to have to, or dad or garden is going to have to possibly pay for this medication. So a lot of times when we make that call, like, Hey, and we, you know, verify name, date of birth, all that, Hey, this came back positive. We'll say to them, like, are you okay? Do you want us to tell mom? Or do you want to tell mom? And a lot of times they'll say, can you tell her please? And we'll do that um, communication. Once we've had the, the, the adolescents consent at that part. And then we'll either, we'll either send a script to the pharmacy that they want, or if they want to pick up a printed script, they can come ahead and come to the clinic or wherever to pick up a printed script. But we make it where we will work with them to see to, to do what's best for them to ensure that they get the medications they need. Anything to add, Melissa?
0: Um, no. Um, the, well, one thing I wanted to just clarify um, is that. Sometimes when kids are saying they are not having sex, it may also not. It some a lot of times it's because their parents are there and they just don't want to talk about it. But sometimes it's a lack of education. Sometimes they think sex is something totally different. Especially some of your younger ones or right before preteen or early teens, they don't realize what they're doing is actually what we call sex. So just because they're denying it doesn't mean that they're straight up lying to us. It just may be. They don't really know what we're talking about, um, because they don't have that education or the correct education. So that's another reason why we just like to do urine on those kids, just to double check. There's nothing wrong with double checking, and it's just urine. It's not gonna hurt them just to get some urine. Yes, and sometimes
1: one of the questions I'll ask, um, I'll ask like, what, um, like, what does what does sex mean? I, I want to know to them what does sex mean. Um, because to them sex might just mean like it has to be penis to vagina for it to be sex and they'll like oh i'm not having sex but then they'll tell you like i had oral sex with with this guy in my class so now i know definitely i also need to swab your throat things like that
0: yes yes um yeah that's the other thing is if there is any concerns of anything mouth-wise we'll we'll swab their mouths as well just to especially in the hospital setting just to make sure there is not any oral um, stds going on that you're not going to catch in your urine Um, so since you've talked about the three medications that you can get um, with for within five days of an assault i'm going to talk about hiv prevention medication Many times when people come into the ER, they are highly worried that they are getting, they're going to get HIV from this um, unplanned sexual encounter. Um, So, according to the CDC, there's quite a few different things they look at. For starters, it's not upwards of five days. There's 72 hours from the time the sexual um, assault happened to the time you can start these medications. It's, it's not. It's not 74 hours, it's not 120, it's only 72 hours, so that's only three days. So to determine if you are at risk of HIV and need to get medications, there is a flow sheet that we look at. So for low risk, that would be you have like urine, nasal secretions, saliva, sweat, or tears exposed to the vagina, the rectum, the eye, the mouth, or other mucous membranes with intact or non-intact skin or percutaneous contact. So if any of that's happening, you're pretty low risk. We're still going to offer the HIV prevention medication because that is something that you are allowed to have. But we're going to say, look, you are really low risk. You may not want to take these medications because you will be taking them for 28 days. The higher risk is if blood, semen, vaginal secretions, rectal secretions, breast milk, or any other body fluid that is visibly contaminated with blood is exposed to the vagina, the rectum, the eye, the mouth, or any other mucous membranes with non-intact skin or percutaneous contact, you're at substantial risk for HIV acquisition. Um, If you have, um, so non-intact skin pretty much we're going to put you a little bit higher risk unless it's just like like we said, like urine or saliva. If there's any penis to vagina contact and there is not intact skin when we're doing our exam, we're going to say, you should probably have this medication. Even if you told us earlier you didn't want it, that's normally when I come back and let me re-educate, let me show you this flow sheet and let me tell you why it might be something you need to have. So the CDC has a couple different methods of medications they can give. The preferred method is you're going to take Truvada and Icentris for 28 days. Those are two medications. One of them you're going to take once a day. The other one you're going to take twice a day for a full 28 days. You're going to get a 30-day supply at most places, but you're going to take it for 28 days. The alternate is Travada and either prezista or, and there. Um, Those are the alternate to tributinicentris, and that is mostly if you are having any kidney disease. So before you take any of these HIV medications, you have to get blood work done. So if you're in a clinic, if they can't do blood work, they are probably not going to be able to give you these medications because you have to get blood work done. They're going to send you to the ER to get the blood work done. Because we have to make sure that you have no pre-existing kidney disease because this does cause renal toxicity.
1: Yes. And we have to also ensure that you are HIV negative.
0: Yes. And you have to be HIV negative because if you're HIV positive, there's other medications. These are medications to help prevent me- um, HIV. It is not to treat HIV. And then sometimes if they give you TIVA-K instead of Icentris, that is okay according to the CDC. Um, One of them is a little bit cheaper, so sometimes they'll give you one over the other. All of these medications are pretty expensive. There are many ways to help get them for cheaper, which we will be talking about on our next episode. Um, But once you get these medications, especially when you are on these HIV medications, you have to take them for the full 28 days. And then you really need to get testing done again in four to six weeks and in three months. And some facilities are also going to want you to get retested in six months. One, to make sure that you're not getting HIV, but they also still have to check all those kidneys to make sure that you're not putting a huge hit on those kidneys after you took that medication. So Lynn, do you have anything else you want to briefly talk about before we stop for the day?
1: Um, Just to put, just to add um, with the HIV, the NPEP treatment or preventative medication, that if you're in the prison system, your course of NPEP or the HIV preventative medication might look a little bit different when it comes to the medication that is used because the prison system they have their own set of medication that they have access to so they're gonna give you something that will work but also that they have access to a lot of times they don't have access to um and this is from my personal experience they don't have access to trivada and icentris i don't remember the name of the medication that they use but it's usually something different also they um we might test for hepatitis c and b prior to starting your npep as well your hiv preventative medications
0: yes and those are just good baseline levels that we can have to check your overall liver function as well Um, because all these medications can all medications can kind of take a hit on your liver every once in a while and the the prison one is a very good thing to point out, and that also, if you're coming into an ER from a prison, we may not start any medications for you, and instead, we will let the infirmary at the prison know what you need, because they have different protocols for way medications can be given. So a lot of times, we might just give that one shot that we can give you, that for cefetraxone, and then the rest, you might just have to get at the prison itself, because they have different protocols they have to meet to give you the medications
1: yes and what i've done in the past is as soon as i'm done with a an inmate for like a scene exam for an inmate i will reach out to the infirmer there and speak to the nurse on because i work nights it's usually like nights it's i'm only going to get a nurse usually speak to the nurse that's on and say and tell her or him or her like hey this is what we recommend this is what the patient already got um, and sometimes we'll send a script and I'll tell them the script will be coming in the folder and I'll find out who I spoke to the nurse's name and I'll ensure that I document who I spoke to on, on what we spoke about just to cover a basis.
0: Yeah, um, that is one thing we're doing is almost always talking to the infirmary because they do have someone available to figure out what do you need from us so that way we can make sure the patient is being taken care of properly. I think overall, that sums up everything we wanted to discuss today. Again, though, if you have any questions or anything, just reach out to us. Um, And next week, we are going to be talking about more about how how you can afford all of this um, if you ever have to go through this exam.
1: All right. And once again, if you have any questions or comments, please leave it below. You can reach us at any of our ha- handles and we will try our best to get back to you or get you on our show. You have a good week and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can reach out to us on Instagram and TikTok at Pod, Patreon and YouTube. You can email any feedback or questions at hello at ColormeSanePod.com.
1: If you or anyone you know has been sexually assaulted, you can call the National Hotline at 1-800-656-4673 or go to the rain.org website, that's R-A-I-N-N.org, and they have an online
0: chat and resources available to you.